In Paradise Lost, John Milton's 17th century work of epic poetry, Lucifer is the name of the angel who leads a failed rebellion against God. He and his soldiers are cast into hell, where he takes on his new name, Satan. But he's not presented as some leathery-winged beast. He has neither hooves nor horns, and isn't the kind of caricature of pure villainy that's so common in modern pop culture. If anything, Milton Satan is a sympathetic character. He can even be read as kind of a tragic hero. Milton may have wanted his readers to reflect on just why they could find the literal devil so unsettlingly relatable. Translated from Latin, Lucifer's name means light-bringer. Today's element, phosphorus, means the exact same thing in Greek. And like the character from Paradise Lost, it's a dangerous thing. It's strongly associated with fire. And there's more than a little phosphorus in all of us. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're distilling information on phosphorus. Ancient humans discovered several elementary substances in prehistoric times, like copper, gold, and carbon. But we don't know who discovered those elements and many of them probably have several discoverers from around the world. But there's a very clear point in history where that changed. Chronologically, phosphorus is the first element we can point to and say, we know who discovered that. That person was a German named Hennig Brand, and the story of this discovery is not quite like any other on the periodic table. Brand was a merchant from Hamburg who dabbled in alchemy. And while many alchemists studied observable natural phenomena, Brand was one of those alchemists who was purely in it for the money. He wanted to find the Philosopher's Stone, a material that, theoretically, would be able to turn base metals like lead and iron into gold. He appears to have been a literal kind of guy, because he reckoned that the way to synthesize a stone that created gold would be from a very common golden liquid, urine. Specifically, human urine, uh, preferably from those gents down at the beer garden who drank all that golden ale. There's no account of who helped Brand, or how he convinced them, but somehow he got his hands on about 5,000 liters of urine. And with it, he did... nothing. For several weeks, he let the urine go deliberately rancid in the hot sun, presumably giving him lots of time to reconsider his life choices. Yet undeterred, and with his sample sufficiently fermented, Brand proceeded to the next step, distillation. 
He heated and cooled and reheated what liquid remained until, finally, a retort filled with a waxy, roiling white substance that mysteriously emitted light without heat. For Brand, the name was obvious. Inspired by Venus, the morning star, he dubbed the material Phosphorus. It's an appropriate name. In addition to the cold fire Brand witnessed, it's pretty connected to the hot kind, too. Phosphorus is extremely flammable. Matches have existed in various forms for about a thousand years, but, but they were quite expensive, rather inconvenient, and often pretty dangerous. It wasn't until the 19th century that cheap, convenient, and relatively safe matches could be mass-produced. They consisted of a wooden splint dipped in liquid phosphorus, which would ignite when heat was applied via friction. You know, striking the match. The production of these matches was not glamorous work. It was done almost exclusively by poor young women and girls who endured terrible working conditions. The low pay and 14-hour days were bad enough, but there were also significant health risks associated with working with phosphorus. Match girls would frequently complain of toothaches, and it wasn't because they were eating excessive amounts of candy. This marked the beginning stage of Fossy Jaw, an occupational hazard caused by inhaling phosphorus fumes. Soon, their gums would be covered in sores, and the very bone of the girl's jaws started to rot away. It was an extremely painful condition, and often the only treatment was the complete removal of the jaw. People began to take notice. In particular, a surprising historical figure whom we've met before, Annie Besant. We last met Annie Besant in Episode 2, Helium, where she and Charles Leadbeater were exploring the occult side of chemistry. But theosophy was Besant's hobby. Her life's work was activism. She supported women's rights, Indian and Irish self-governance, and she was a socialist who, through her speaking and writing, fought hard on behalf of workers. London's Match Girls led a work strike in 1888, helped by Besant's advice and outspoken support. This was a time before electric lighting was available, so people were really dependent on candles and gas lighting. And this was the first time anyone had challenged the politically powerful match industry. There was enormous public support for the strike, and after only a week, the Match Girls had won fairer pay and safer working conditions. The bad publicity helped move the industry away from dangerous and volatile white phosphorus and toward the use of red phosphorus, which neither caused fossy jaw nor spontaneously ignited in contact with the air, safer for both manufacturer and user. For about a hundred years, that phosphorus had been harvested from urine in pretty much the same way that Brand had done it. But by the 1770s, Carl Wilhelm Scheele showed that there was an even richer biological source of element 15. Bone. Calcium gets all the press when it comes to bone health, but phosphorus is at least as important. 
As phosphate, or a phosphorus atom attached to four oxygen atoms, it accounts for over half of a bone's mass. And while our skeletons are pretty important, there's another role phosphorus plays in biology that's even more critical. Adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, is the currency of biochemical energy. Cracking apart a molecule of ATP provides a small amount of energy that a cell can use to perform essential functions. Every movement, from sprinting at full tilt, to batting an eyelash, to a single heartbeat, requires the body to spend some amount of adenosine triphosphate. This means that we go through a lot of ATP in any given day. Thankfully, our bodies are really good at recycling ATP. Each molecule of the stuff can be used thousands of times over in a single day. That's actually why we breathe. Through respiration, our bodies use oxygen to glue ATP molecules back together, and we can use them again. And this isn't just for humans, or mammals, or even animals. This is how all known life works. And much like nitrogen, it's not difficult for us to keep our phosphorus levels up with our diets. But it's much more difficult for plants. Phosphorus is another main ingredient in fertilizer, and before the invention of synthetic fertilizer, guano was the best stuff on earth. We've name-checked guano a few times in past episodes, but we haven't actually talked about what it is. I suppose it's about time we remedy that. Guano is the euphemistic name for bird droppings, or sometimes bat droppings. Yes, droppings as in feces, excrement, dung, poop, and it's basically a straight shot of essential plant nutrients. There are some places, particularly islands off the coast of South America, where birds have been making deposits for centuries, or even millennia. On particularly rich islands, the hardened guano runs hundreds of feet deep, and it's mined like salt or other minerals. Indigenous people had been mining guano for centuries, but colonizing powers set off a global craze for the stuff. If you remember, agriculture was having a difficult time keeping up with booming populations, and farmers' fields were becoming exhausted faster than they could be naturally replenished. The United States took this farther than just about anyone else. In 1856, the U.S. Congress passed the Guano Islands Act, which was a bold piece of legislation. It declared that if any American found any island yet unclaimed by another country, and if there was any guano there, that person could claim that island as part of the United States. Over a hundred islands were claimed this way, and several of them remain part of the United States, like Howland Island, Baker Island, Midway Atoll, and a handful of others. Nobody actually lives on most of these islands, as they're far too small to support any kind of settlement. Kingman Reef is probably the saddest example among them. At low tide, it barely pokes out of the water, and it's a narrow strip of land about three kilometers long and three meters wide. 
In fact, for the purposes of criminal law, these places don't count as islands. They count as merchant vessels on the high seas. But perhaps the most surprising thing about the Guano Islands Act is that it's still on the books. Anyone who finds a yet unclaimed island can still add it to the American Empire. The most recent claim was attempted in 1997, when an American tried to claim a small Caribbean island named Navassa Island. This was denied, however, on the grounds that the United States had already claimed Navassa. It should be noted that Haiti has disputed this claim for well over a century. This all seems very silly at best, and perhaps avaricious at worst. It might very well be both of those things, but nearly a century after the Guano Islands Act passed, the islands claimed under it came in extremely useful. Those islands provided a critical foothold for the Allies in the Pacific theater of World War II. All thanks to one big pile of phosphorus. Meanwhile, in the European theater of the war, Element 15 had a much more direct effect. In July 1943, the Royal Air Force commenced Operation Gamora, an eight-day bombing campaign against strategic German targets. And these were no ordinary bombs. These were incendiary weapons. Firebombs. These munitions were laced with phosphorus and thermite, causing them to burn at over 1,400 degrees Fahrenheit for over a week. The city burned in a terrible firestorm, with plumes of flame rising 20 feet into the sky. Winds whipped at 120 miles an hour, toppling buildings to the ground and pulling trees into the air. And the target chosen for Operation Gomorrah was one of Germany's largest industrial centers a shipyard and oil refinery, and a city that was home to well over a million civilians. Hamburg, the very city where Hennig Brand had discovered phosphorus. Clearly, it shouldn't be too hard to get your hands on Element 15 for your collection. It's in your food, it's in your bones, and it's coursing through your blood. And other bodily fluids, of course. And that's true, though it used to be even easier to get your hands on it. White phosphorus used to be in such supply that actors used to paint it on their faces for an eerie, otherworldly effect, like if they had to portray the ghost of Hamlet's father. At least, until they realized that doing this might turn them into a ghost offstage as well. There's at least one other prominent use of phosphorescent makeup in fiction as well. Apologies for spoiling a century-old mystery, but this is the secret behind the very spooky titular canine in the Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. But in the 21st century, red phosphorus is much easier to get a hold of. It doesn't glow upon contact with air like white phosphorus does, but it comes with any old box of kitchen matches. But don't be fooled by those little red match heads. The phosphorus is actually in the striker, on the side of the box. Regardless of where you source your phosphorus from, just remember, no matter how brightly it gleams, 
it is definitely not gold. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn more about the difference between white and red phosphorus and what black phosphorus is, and to read a story that was just too grim to get into on this episode, visit episodictable.com p. That is the letter P, not the waste fluid. Next time, we'll add some brimstone to this fire with sulfur. This is T.R. Appleton reminding you that if it's yellow, don't keep it mellow. Still just flush it down. Come on, man. Flush. Flush.